Section 19 of The South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 19. Volume 1. Chapter 9. The End of the Winter. Part 1. After Midwinter Day, the time began to pass even more quickly than before. The darkest period was over, and the sun was daily drawing nearer. In the middle of the darkest time, Hassel came in one morning and announced that Elsa had eight puppies. Six of these were ladies, so their fate was sealed at once. They were killed and given to their elder relations, who appreciated them highly. It could hardly be seen that they chewed them at all. They went down practically whole. There could be no doubt of their approval, as the next day the other two had also disappeared. The weather conditions we encountered down here surprised us greatly. In every quarter of the Antarctic regions of which we had any information, the conditions had always proved very unsettled. On the Belgica, in the drift ice to the west of Graham Land, we always had rough, unpleasant weather. Nordenskjold's stay in the regions to the east of the same land gave the same report, storm after storm the whole time. And from the various English expeditions that have visited McMurdo Sound, we hear of continual violent winds. Indeed, we know now that while we were living on the barrier in the most splendid weather, calms or light breezes, Scott at his station, some four hundred miles to the west of us, was troubled by frequent storms, which greatly hindered his work. I had expected the temperature to remain high, as throughout the winter we could very clearly see the dark sky over the sea. Whenever the state of the air was favourable, the dark, heavy water sky was visible in a marked degree, leaving no doubt that a large extent of Ross Sea was open the whole year round. Nevertheless, the temperature went very low, and without doubt the mean temperature shown by our observations for the year is the lowest that has ever been recorded. Our lowest temperature on August 13, 1911, was minus 74.2 degrees Fahrenheit. For five months of the year we were able to record temperatures below minus 58 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature rose with every wind, except the southwest. With that it more usually went down. We observed the aurora australis many times, but only a few of its appearances were specially powerful. They were of all possible forms, though the form of ribbon-like bands seemed to be commonest. Most of the aurorae were multicolored, red and green. My hypothesis of the solidity of the barrier, that is, of its resting upon underlying land, seems to be confirmed at all points by our observations during our twelve months' stay on it. In the course of the winter and spring, the pack ice is forced up against the barrier into pressure ridges of as much as forty feet in height. This took place only about a mile and a quarter from our hut, without our noticing its effect in the slightest degree. In my opinion, if this barrier had been afloat, the effect of the violent shock which took place at its edge would not merely have been noticeable, but would have shaken our house. While building the house, Stubberud and Bjaland heard a loud noise a long way off, but could feel nothing. During our whole stay we never heard a sound or felt a movement on this spot. Another very good proof seems to be afforded by the large theodolite that Preestrud used. It would take next to nothing to disturb its level. A slight change of temperature might be enough. So delicate an instrument would have soon shown an inclination if the barrier had been afloat. The day we entered the bay for the first time, a small piece of its western cape broke away. 
During the spring, the drift ice pressed in an insignificant part of one of the many points on the outer edge of the barrier. With these exceptions, we left the barrier as we found it, entirely unaltered. The soundings, which showed a rapid rise in the bottom as the Fram changed her position southward along the barrier, are also a clear sign that land is close at hand. Finally, the formations of the barrier appear to be the best proof. It could not rise to 1,100 feet, which we measured as the rise from Framheim to a point about 31 miles to the south, without subjacent land. Work now proceeded on the sledging outfit with feverish haste. We had for a long time been aware that we should have to do our utmost and make the best use of our time if we were to have the general outfit for our common use ready by the middle of August. For preparing our personal outfit we had to use our leisure time. By the first half of August we could begin to see the end of our labour. Bialand had now finished the four sledges. It was a masterly piece of work that he had carried out in the course of the winter. They were extremely lightly constructed, but very strong. They were of the same length as the original sledges, about twelve feet, and were not shot. We should have a couple of the old Fram sledges with us, and these were shot with strong steel plates so that they could be used at the surface and going, rendered it necessary. The average weight of the new sledges was fifty-three pounds. We had thus saved as much as one hundred and ten pounds per sledge. When Bjarland had finished them, they were taken into the clothing stall. The way in which Hansen and Wisting lashed the various parts together was a guarantee of their soundness. In fact, the only way in which one can expect work to be properly and carefully carried out is to have it done by the very men who are to use the things. They know what is at stake. They do it so that they may reach their destination. More than that, they do it so that they may come back again. Every piece of binding is first carefully examined and tested. Then it is put on, cautiously and accurately. Every turn is hauled taut, taking care that it is in its right place. And finally, the lashing is pointed in such a way that one would do best to use a knife or an axe if it has to be undone again. There is no danger of jerking it out with the fingers. A sledge journey of the kind we had before us is a serious undertaking, and the work has to be done seriously. It was no warm and comfortable workshop that they had for doing this. The clothing stall was always the coldest place, probably because there was always a draught through it. There was a door out on to the barrier, and an open passage leading to the house. Fresh air was constantly passing through, though not in any very great quantity, but it does not take much to make itself felt when the air is at a temperature of about minus seventy-five degrees Fahrenheit, and when one is working with bare fingers. There were always some degrees of frost here. In order to keep the lashings pliable while they were being put on, they used a primus lamp on a stone close to where they were working. I often admired their patience when I stood watching them. I have seen them more than once working bare-handed by the hour, together, in a temperature of about minus twenty-two degrees Fahrenheit. This may pass for a short time, but through the coldest and darkest part of the winter, working day after day as they did, it is pretty severe, and a great trial of patience. Nor were their feet very well off, either. It makes hardly any difference what one puts on them if one has to stay still. Here, as elsewhere in the cold, it was found that boots with wooden soles were the best for sedentary work. But for some reason or other, the occupants of the clothing stool would not give their adherence to the wooden sole principle, and continued to work all through the winter in their reindeer-skin and seal-skin boots. They preferred stamping their feet to acknowledging the incontestable superiority of wooden soles in such conditions. As the sledges were finished, they were numbered from one to seven, and stored in the clothing department. 
The three old sledges we should have to use were made of the Fram's second expedition. They were extremely strong, and, of course, heavier than the new ones. They were all carefully overhauled. All the bindings and lashings were examined and replaced wherever necessary. The steel shoes were taken off one, but retained on the other two, in case we should meet with conditions where they would be required. In addition to this work of lashing, these two had plenty of other occupation. Whenever Wisting was not taken up by the work on the sledges, one could hear the hum of his sewing machine. He had a thousand different things to do in his sewing room, and was in there nearly every day till late in the evening. It was only when the target and darts came out at half-past eight that he showed himself, and if it had not been that he had undertaken the position of marker at these competitions, we should hardly have seen him even then. His first important piece of work was making four three-man tents into two. It was not easy to manage these rather large tents in the little hole that went by the name of the sewing-room. Of course, he used a table in the clothing-room for cutting out, but, all the same, it is a mystery how he contrived to get hold of the right seams when he sat in his hole. I was prepared to see the most curious-looking tents when once they were brought out and set up in daylight. One might imagine that the floor of one would be sewed on to the side of another. But nothing of the sort happened. When the tents were brought out for the first time and set up, they proved to be perfect. One would have thought they had been made in a big sail-loft instead of in a snow-drift. Neat-fingered fellows like this are priceless on such an expedition as ours. On the second Fram expedition they used double tents, and, as, of course, nothing is so good and serviceable as the thing one has not got, the praises of double tents were now sung in every key. Well, I naturally had to admit that a house with double walls is warmer than one with single walls, but, at the same time, one must not lose sight of the fact that the double-walled house is also twice as heavy, and when one has to consider the weight of a pocket-handkerchief, it will be understood that the question of the real advantages of the double-walled house had to be thoroughly considered before taking the step of committing oneself to it. I had thought that with double walls one would possibly avoid some of the rhyme that is generally so troublesome in the tents, and often becomes a serious matter. If, then, the double walls would in any way prevent or improve this condition of things, I could see the advantage of having them, for the increased weight caused by the daily deposit of rhyme would in a short time be equal to, if not greater than, the additional weight of the double tent. These double tents are made so that the outer tent is fast and the inner loose. In the course of our discussion it appeared that the deposit of rhyme occurred just as quickly on a double tent as on a single one, and thus the utility of the double tent appeared to me to be rather doubtful. If the object was merely to have it a few degrees warmer in the tent, I thought it best to sacrifice this comfort to the weight we should thereby save. Moreover, we were so plentifully supplied with warm sleeping things that we should not have to suffer any hardship. But another question cropped up as a result of this discussion, the question of what was the most useful colour for a tent. We were soon agreed that a dark-coloured tent was best, for several reasons. In the first place, as a relief to the eyes. We knew well enough what a comfort it would be to come into a dark tent after travelling all day on the glistening barrier surface. In the next place, the dark colour would make the tent a good deal warmer when the sun was up, another important consideration. One may easily prove this by walking in dark clothes in a hot sun, and afterwards changing to white ones. And finally, a dark tent would be far easier to see on the white surface than a light one. When all these questions have been discussed, and the superiority of a dark tent admitted, we were doubly keen on it, since all our tents happened to be light, not to say white, and the possibility of getting dark ones was not very apparent. It is true we had a few yards of darkish gabardine, or light windproof material, which would have been extremely suitable for this purpose, 
but every yard of it had long ago been destined for some other use, so that did not get us out of the difficulty. But, said somebody, and he had a very cunning air as he uttered that but, but haven't we got ink and ink powder that we can dye our tents dark with? Yes, of course. We all smiled indulgently. The thing was so plain that it was almost silly to mention it, but all the same. The man was forgiven his silliness, and dye-works were established. Wisting accepted the position of dyer, in addition to his other duties, and succeeded so well that before very long we had two dark blue tents instead of the white ones. These looked very well, no doubt, freshly dyed as they were, but the question was, what would they look like after a couple of months' use? The general opinion was that they would probably, to a great extent, have reverted to their original colour, or lack of colour. Some better patent had to be invented. As we were sitting over our coffee after dinner one day, someone suddenly suggested, "'But look here. Suppose we took our bunk curtains and made an outer tent of them.' This time the smile that passed over the company as they put down their cups was almost compassionate. Nothing was said, but the silence meant something like, "'Poor chap!' as if we hadn't all thought of that long ago. The proposal was adopted without discussion, and Wisting had another long job, in addition to all the rest. Our bunk curtains were dark red, and made of very light material. They were sewed together, curtain to curtain, and finally the whole was made into an outer tent. The curtains only sufficed for one tent, but, remembering that half a loaf is better than no bread, we had to be satisfied with this. The red tent, which was set up a few days after, met with unqualified approval. It would be visible some miles away in the snow. Another important advantage was that it would protect and preserve the main tent. Inside, the effect of the combination of red and blue was to give an agreeably dark shade. Another question was how to protect the tent from a hundred loose dogs, who were no better behaved than others of their kind. If the tent became stiff and brittle, it might be spoiled in a very short time. And the demands we made on our tents were considerable. We expected them to last at least one hundred and twenty days. I therefore got Wisting to make two tent-protectors, or guards. These guards consisted simply of a piece of gabardine long enough to stretch all round the tent, and to act as a fence in preventing the dogs from coming in direct contact with the tents. The guards were made with loops, so that they could be stretched upon ski-poles. They looked very fine when they were finished, but they never came to be used, for, as soon as we began the journey, we found a material that was even more suitable and always to be had. Snow. Idiots. Of course, we all knew that, only we wouldn't say so. Well, that was one against us. However, the guards came in well as reserve material on the trip, and many were the uses they were put to. In the next place, Wisting had to make wind clothing for every man. That we had brought out proved to be too small, but the things he made were big enough. There was easily room for two more in my trousers, but they have to be so. In these regions, one soon finds out that everything that is roomy is warm and comfortable, while everything that is tight, footgear of course excepted, is warm and uncomfortable. One quickly gets into a perspiration and spoils the clothes. Besides the breeches and light windcloth, he made stockings of the same material. I assumed that these stockings, worn among the other stockings we had on, would have an insulating effect. Opinions were greatly divided on this point, but I must confess, in common with my four companions on the polar journey, that I would never make a serious trip without them. They fulfilled all our expectations. The rime was deposited on them freely, and was easily brushed off. If they got wet, it was easy to dry them in almost all weathers. I know of no material that dries so quickly as this windproof stuff. Another thing was that they protected the other stockings against tears, and made them last much longer than would otherwise have been the case. 
as evidence of how pleased we who took part in the long sledge journey were with these stockings i may mention that when we reached the depot in eighty degrees south on the homeward trip be it noted that is when we looked upon the journey as over we found there some bags with various articles of clothing in one of these were two pairs of windproof stockings the bag presumably belonged to an opponent of the idea and it may be imagined that there was some fun we all wanted them all without exception the two lucky ones each seized his pair and hid it as if it was the most costly treasure what they wanted with them i cannot guess as we were at home but this example shows how we had learned to appreciate them i recommend them most warmly to men who are undertaking similar expeditions but i must add they must give themselves the trouble of taking off their footgear every evening and brushing the rime off their stockings if one does not do this of course the rime will thaw in the course of the night and everything will be soaking wet in the morning in that case you must not blame the stockings but yourself after this it was the turn of the underclothing there was nothing in the tailoring and outfitting department that wisting could not manage among our medical stores we had two large rolls of the most beautiful fine light flannel and of this he made underclothing for all of us what we had brought out from home was made of extremely thick woolen material and we were afraid that this would be too warm personally i wore wisting's make the whole trip and have never known anything so perfect then he had covers for the sleeping-bags to sew and patch and one thing and another some people give one the impression of being able to make anything and to get it done in no time others not hansen had his days well occupied industrious and handy as he was he was an expert at anything relating to sledges and knew exactly what had to be done whatever he had a hand in i could feel sure of he never left anything to chance besides lashing the sledges he had a number of other things to do amongst them he was to prepare all the whips we required two for each driver or fourteen altogether stubbert was to supply the handles in consultation with the carpenters union i had chosen a handle made of three narrow strips of hickory i assumed that if these were securely lashed together and the lashings covered with leather they would make as strong a handle as one could expect to get the idea of the composite handle of three pieces of wood was that it would give and bend instead of breaking we knew by experience that a solid whip handle did not last very long it was arranged then that the handles were to be made by stubberud and passed on to hansen the whip lashes were made by hassel in the course of the winter on the eskimo model they were round and heavy as they should be and dangerous to come near when they were wielded by an experienced hand hansen received these different parts to join them together and make the whip as usual this was done with all possible care three strong lashings were put on each handle and these again were covered with leather personally hansen was not in favour of the triple hickory handle but he did the work without raising any objection we all remarked it is true that at this time contrary to his habit he spent the hours after supper with whisting i wondered a little at this as i knew hansen was very fond of a game of whist after supper and never missed it unless he had work to do i happened one evening to express my surprise at this and stubberud answered at once he's making handles what sort of handles whip handles but stubberud added i'll guarantee those hickory handles i'm making you can't have anything tougher and stronger than those he was rather sore about it that was easy to see the idea was his own too then talk of the devil in walked hansen with a fine big whip in his hand i of course appeared extremely surprised what i said more whips yes said he i don't believe in those i'm making in the daytime but here's a whip that i can trust i must admit that it looked well the whole handle was covered so that one could not see what it was made of but 
I ventured to object. Are you sure it is as strong as the others? Oh, as to that, he answered, I am quite ready to back it against any of those. He did not say the word, nor was there any need. His meaning was unmistakable, and rotten whips sounded in our ears as plainly as if he had shouted it. I had no time to observe the effect of this terrible utterance, for a determined voice called out, "'We'll see about that!' I turned round, and there was Stubberud, leaning against the end of the table, evidently hurt by Hansen's words, which he took as a personal affront. "'If you dare risk your whip, come on!' He had taken down one of the insulted triple-handled whips from the shelf in his bunk, and stood in a fighting attitude. This promised well. We all looked at Hansen. He had gone too far to be able to draw back. He had to fight. He took his weapon in his hand and entered the ring. The conditions were arranged and accepted by both parties. They were to fight until one of the handles was broken. And then the whip duel began. The opponents were very serious over it. One, two, three. The first blow fell, handle against handle. The combatants had shut their eyes and awaited the result. When they opened them again, they shone with happy surprise. Both handles were as whole as before. Now each of them was really delighted with his own handle, and the blows fell faster. Stubberud, who was standing with his back to the table, got so excited over the unexpected result that, every time he raised his weapon, he gave the edge of the table a resounding smack without knowing it. How many rounds had been fought I do not know, when I heard a crack, followed by the words, "'There you can see, old man!' As Stubberud left the ring, I was able to see Hansen. He stood on the battlefield, eyeing his whip. It looked like a broken lily. The spectators had not been silent. They had followed the fight with excitement, amid laughters and shouts. "'That's right, Stubert. Don't give in. Bravo, Hansen. That's a good one.' The whips afterwards turned out remarkably well. Not that they lasted out the trip, but they held together for a long while. Whip handles are a very perishable commodity. If one used nothing but the lash, they would be everlasting. But, as a rule, one is not long satisfied with that. It is when one gives a confirmation, as we call it, that the handle breaks. A confirmation is generally held when some sinner or other has gone wrong and refuses to obey. It consists in taking the first opportunity, when the sledge stops, of going in among the dogs, taking out the defiant one, and laying into him with the handle. These confirmations, if they occur frequently, may use up a lot of handles. It was also arranged that Hansen should prepare goggles in the Eskimo fashion, and he began this work but it soon appeared that every one had some patent of his own which was much better. Therefore it was given up, and every man made his own goggles. Stuperud's chief work was making the sledge cases lighter, and he succeeded in doing this, but not without hard work. It took far longer than one would have thought. The wood had a good many knots, and he often had to work against the grain. The planing was therefore rather difficult and slow. He planed a good deal of them, but could guarantee them, as he said. Their sides were not many millimetres thick. To strengthen them in the joints, corners of aluminium were put on. In addition to remaking the sledges, Bjarlund had to get the ski ready. To fit the big broad boots we should wear, the Hardfeld fittings had to be much broader than usual, and we had such with us so that Bjarlund had only to change them. The ski bindings were like the snow goggles. Everyone had his own patent. I found the bindings that Bjarland had put on for himself so efficient that I had no hesitation in ordering similar ones for myself, and it may be said to their honour, and to the honour of him who made them, that they were first-rate, and served me well during the whole trip. They were, after all, only a retention of the old system, but, with the help of hooks and eyes, they could be put on and taken off in an instant. 
and those were the conditions we demanded of our bindings, that they should hold the foot as firmly as a vice, and should be easy to hook on and take off. For we always had to take them off on the journey. If one left one's bindings out for a night, they were gone in the morning. The dogs looked upon them as a delicacy. The toe-strap also had to be removed in the evening. In other words, the ski had to be left absolutely bare. Johansen, besides his packing, was occupied in making weights and tent-pegs. The weights were very ingeniously made. The steel-yard system was adopted. If they were never used, it was not the fault of the weights. They were good enough. But the reason was that we had all our provisions so arranged that they could be taken without being weighed. We were all weighed on August 6, and it then appeared that Lindstrom was the heaviest, with thirteen stones eight pounds. On that occasion he was officially christened Fatty. The ten pegs Johansen made were the opposite of what such pegs usually are. In other words, they were flat instead of being high. We saw the advantage at once. Besides being so much lighter, they were many times stronger. I do not know that we ever broke a peg on the trip. Possibly we lost one or two. Most of them were brought home undamaged. Hassel worked at his whiplashes down in the petroleum store. It was an uncomfortable place for him, always cold, but he had the lashes ready by the time he had promised them. Preestrud made charts and copied out tables. Six of us were to have these copies. In each sledge there was a combined provision and observation book, bearing the same number as the sledge. It contained, first, an exact list of the provisions contained in each case on that sledge, and, in addition, the necessary tables for our astronomical observations. In these books each man kept a daily account of every scrap of provisions he took out. In this way we could always check the contents of the cases and know what quantity of provisions we had. Farther on in the book the observations were entered, and the distance covered for the day, course, and so on. That is a rough outline of what we were doing in the course of the winter in working hours. Besides this, there were, of course, a hundred things that every man had to do for his personal equipment. During the winter, each man had his outfit served out to him, so that he might have time to make whatever alterations he found necessary. Every man received a heavy and a lighter suit of reindeer skin, as well as reindeer skin mitts and stockings. He also had dog skin stockings and sealskin kamiks. In addition, there was a complete outfit of underclothing and wind clothes. All were served alike, there was no priority at all. The skin clothing was the first to be tackled, and here there was a good deal to be done, as nothing had been made to measure. One man found that the hood of his anorak came too far down over his eyes, another that it did not come down far enough, so both had to set to work at alterations, one cutting off, the other adding a piece. One found his trousers too long, another too short, and they had to alter those. However, they managed it. The needle was always at work, either for sewing a piece on or for hemming the shortened piece. Although we began this work in good time, it looked as if we should never have finished. The room orderly had to sweep out huge piles of strips and reindeer hair every morning, but the next morning there were just as many. If we had stayed there, I am sure we should still be sitting and sewing away at our outfit. A number of patterns were invented. Of course, the everlasting mask for the face was to the fore, and took the form of nose protectors. I, too, allowed myself to be beguiled into experimenting, with good reason, as I thought, but with extremely poor results. I had hit upon something which, of course, I thought much better than anything that had been previously tried. The day I put on my invention, I not only got my nose frozen, but my forehead and cheek as well. I never tried it again. Hassel was great at new inventions. He wore nose protectors all over him. These patterns are very good things for passing the time. 
when one actually takes the field, they all vanish. They are useless for serious work. The sleeping bags were also a great source of interest. Johansen was at work on the double one he was so keen on. Heaven knows how many skins he put into it. I don't, nor did I ever try to find out. Bjarland was also in full swing with alterations to his. He found the opening at the top inconvenient, and preferred to have it in the middle. His arrangement of a flap, with buttons and loops, made it easy to mistake him for a colonel of dragoons when he was in bed. He was tremendously pleased with it, but so he was with his snow-goggles, in spite of the fact that he could not see with them, and that they allowed him to become snow-blind. The rest of us kept our sleeping-bags as they were, only lengthening or shortening them as required. We were all greatly pleased with the device for closing them, on the plan of a sack. Outside our bags we had a cover of very thin canvas. This was extremely useful, and I would not be without it for anything. In the daytime the sleeping-bag was always well protected by this cover. No snow could get in. At night it was perhaps even more useful, as it protected the bag from the moisture of the breath. Instead of condensing on the skin and making it wet, this settled on the cover, forming in the course of the night a film of ice, which disappeared again during the day, breaking off while the bag lay stretched on the sledge. This cover ought to be of ample size. It is important that it should be rather longer than the sleeping bag, so that one may have plenty of it round the neck, and thus prevent the breath from penetrating into the bag. We all had double bags, an inner and an outer one. The inner one was of calfskin or thin female reindeer skin, and quite light. The outer one was of heavy buck reindeer skin, and weighed about thirteen pounds. Both were open at the end, like a sack, and were laced together round the neck. I have always found this pattern the easiest, simplest, most comfortable, and best. We recommend it to all. Novelties in the way of snow goggles were many. This was, of course, a matter of the greatest importance, and required study. It was studied, too. The particular problem was to find good goggles without glass. It is true that I had worn nothing but a pair of ordinary spectacles with light yellow glasses all the autumn, and that they had proved excellent. But for the long journey I was afraid these would give insufficient protection. I therefore threw myself into the competition for the best patent. The end of it was that we all went in for leather goggles, with a little slit for the eyes. The Bialand patent won the prize, and was most adopted. Hassel had his own invention, combined with a nose-protector. When spread out, it reminded me of the American eagle. I never saw him use it. Nor did any of us use these new goggles except Bialand. He used his own goggles the whole way, but then he was the only one who became snow-blind. The spectacles I wore, Hansen had the same, they were the only two pairs we had, gave perfect protection. Not once did I have a sign of snow-blindness. They were exactly like other spectacles, without any gauze at all around the glasses. The light could penetrate everywhere. Dr. Schanz, of Dresden, who sent me these glasses, has every right to be satisfied with his invention. It beats anything I have ever tried or seen. The next great question was our boots. I had expressly pointed out that boots must be taken, whether the person concerned intended to wear them or not, for boots were indispensable, in case of having to cross any glacier, which was a contingency we had to reckon with, from the descriptions we had read of the country. With this proviso, everyone might do as he pleased, and all began by improving their boots in accordance with our previous experience. The improvement consisted in making them larger. Wisting took mine in hand again, and began once more to pull them to pieces. It is only by tearing a thing to pieces that one can see what the work is like. We gained a good insight into the way our boots had been made. Stronger or more conscientious work it would be impossible to find. It was hard work pulling them to pieces. 
This time mine lost a couple more souls. How many that made altogether I do not remember, but now I got what I always called for, room enough. Besides being able to wear all the foot coverings I had, I could also find room for a wooden sole. That made me happy. My great object was achieved. Now the temperature could be as low as it liked. It would not get through the wooden soles and my various stockings, seven pairs I think in all. I was pleased that evening, as the struggle had been a long one. It had taken me nearly two years to arrive at this result. And then there was the dog harness, which we must all have in order. The experience of the last depot journey, when two dogs fell into a crevasse through faulty harness, must not be allowed to repeat itself. We therefore devoted great care and attention to this gear, and used all the best materials we had. The result rewarded our pains. We had good, strong harness for every team. This description will perhaps open the eyes of some people, and show them that the equipment of an expedition such as we were about to enter upon is not the affair of a day. It is not money alone that makes for the success of such an expedition, though heaven knows it is a good thing to have, but it is in a great measure, indeed I may say that this is the greatest factor, the way in which the expedition is equipped, the way in which every difficulty is foreseen and precautions taken for meeting or avoiding it. Victory awaits him who has everything in order. Luck, people call it. Defeat is certain for him who has neglected to take the necessary precautions in time. This is called bad luck. But pray do not think this is an epitaph I wish to have inscribed on my own tomb. No, honour where honour is due, honour to my faithful comrades who, by their patience, perseverance and experience, brought our equipment to the limit of perfection, and thereby rendered our victory possible. End of section 19